Live from the basement, this is Cellar Dweller Sports. And we're back with another edition of Cellar Dweller Sports with K-Dog and G-Mac. Live from the cellar, and we're joined by the Metropolitans who are also in the cellar. Our topics today will be the NBA playoff prediction, NHL second round playoff prediction, and Islanders recap of the first and second game, top five edition, Mets and Yankees rewind, and K-Dog's fantasy minute at the end. First, we'll start out with NBA playoff predictions, and we'll start out in the East. We'll start out with the first Bucks seed versus the eight Magic. In this, I have the Bucks in four. Really, uh, it's arguably the best player in the league, and Giannis and the rest of the Bucks will handily beat the Magic. I think Chris Middleton and Brooke Lopez have been on their game as well lately, and I don't see them letting up in the first round. I agree with you. The Bucks uh, will beat the Magic. I, I'll give the Magic one game. Bucks in five. Bucks swept the season series four games to zip. One each game by an average of 17 points. So this wasn't even competitive in the regular season. The Bucks' number one weakness is their defense beyond the arc. You know they've 14 three pointers per game. That's a that the Bucks have allowed is a season re- season all-time record. Six teams had their season high for three-pointers against the Bucks. Bucks are 1 and 5 in those games. That's their weakness. However, the Magic are ranked 26% and 26 and three-point uh, percentage shooting. They won't be able to capitalize on the Bucks poor defense beyond the arc. They only shot 32% against the Bucks this year. The Magic just they're not good enough from the outside to make the puck the Bucks pay for their biggest deficiency, and as a result, Bucks should have no trouble moving it on to round two. Again, I'll give Magic a game, no more. I don't see this being competitive, and, and the Bucks will win in five. Yeah, that is true. I don't think the Magic see a win, though, in my opinion. I think Bucks get the sweep. But on to our next series, we have the two-seeded Raptors versus the seven-seed Nets, our Nets. I think the Raptors will win in five. This series is no contest either, unfortunately, for our Nets. They lost the season series 3-1. The Nets don't have their star players on the court, including Durant, Kyrie, Dinwiddie, and DeAndre Jordan. Even though they, I think one game, Levert and Jared Allen will give the Raptors a run for their money, but I think Siakam leads the Raptors to a series win and pushes them farther into the playoffs. I agree with you. You know, the Nets are our team, but they can't pe- compete with the Raptors. You know, I'm taking Toronto to win this series in five games. And the season series, you know, making that comparison really doesn't matter because as we've talked about, this isn't the Nets team that we've seen before during the regular season, right? They don't have Durant, Irving's out, Dinwiddie, Chandler, Claxton, Jordan, Prince all opt out. But surprisingly, the Nets won five and three in seeding games. I think the games will be somewhat competitive, but the Rock, Ra- Raptors take care of business against teams with a losing record. They went 37-4 and four against teams with a losing record during the regular season. 
although one of those losses was to Brooklyn, who snapped the Raptors' 15-game win streak before the All-Star break. So, you know, Brooklyn could win a game, maybe two. You know, the Raptors' defense is really good, so they don't have to score a lot of points to win. But I think if the Nets can get hot from behind the arc, you know, Joe Harris, they could take more than one game. But I'm predicting Raptors in five games, you know, and the next and the Nets welcome in the KD era next December. That's really what it's all about. Yeah, the Nets got to get ready for next year. Back to the Bucks, they also have a really good record against uh, teams under 500, so that would be easy for them as well. But on to the next series, we have. The three-seeded Boston Celtics versus the six-seeded 76ers of Philadelphia. I have the Celtics in six in this one. The Sixers had the Celtics number all season, winning three out of the four games they played this season. A few blowouts in between those games. But with Ben Simmons out, it's hard to see them winning this series. Tatum and Kemba and Gordon Hayward will bring this team to the next round, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. I think you looked at my notes again, but um, this is probably the most competitive and intriguing matchup in round one. This is the 21st time these two teams have met in the playoffs, and that's the most two teams have ever matched up in the playoffs. You know, the Sixers won three or four in the regular season, but I'm going Boston to win in six games. I said this on an earlier episode, and I'm sticking with it. I said it before Ben Simmons got hurt because I think the Celtics have more talent and better team chemistry. Celtics appear to be at full strength with Kemba Walker, looking good after a 20-week layoff due to left knee injury. Kemba played six of eight seeding games Mm -hmm. and had a a seeding series best 19 points in 28 minutes against the Grizz. You know, he's not getting to the basket as much as before the injury, but was 8 for 10 from mid-range and 15 from uh, 34 from behind the arc. I think the Ben Simmons injury will obviously impact the Sixers, especially because uh, Ben Simmons covered Jason Tatum, and uh, Jason Tatum only shot 33%, shot 33% with Simmons covering him. The Sixers will, will need another strategy without Ben Simmons. And, you know, I, I'm also not a big believer in Embiid. Not sure he's at 100%, but regardless, he seems to get distracted frequently, and that takes his focus away from the game. Embiid was only 18 of 46 in three games against the Celtics this season. Uh, Celtics win the coaching matchup as well. I think mm-hmm. Brad Stevens is a much better coach than Brad Brett Brown who will probably be fired when they lose this series. Uh, as a result, you know, I'm taking the Celtics in six, and uh, the Sixers will have to look within to see if they can win with this team. Yeah, you're right. It always seems like Embiid tries to find trouble, even if it's with his own team, especially in the bubble with Shake Milton a few games ago. I don't think they have the right team chemistry to pull this thing off. I agree with you 100%. On to the last series in the East, we have the four-seeded Indiana Pacers versus the five-seed Miami Heat. In this series, I have the Heat in five. The Heat won the season series 3-1, and I think this continues in the playoffs with Jimmy Buckets. He locked up bubble, he'll lock up bubble MVP runner-up in TJ Warren once again uh, before they played uh, outside the bubble this season. He locked up TJ Warren. I think it happens again. He won't score as many points as he has in the bubble. 
and I think the great young guns in Tyler Hero and Kendrick Nunn are going to make this team a threat for years to come, including this playoff season. Uh, K-Dog, I agree with you. Uh, I think there's a lot of energy and drama in this series, highlighted by Jimmy, the Jimmy Butler-TJ Warren feud. You know, Jimmy Butler letting everyone know that T.J. Warren, Warren isn't in his class, that T.J. Warren will not put up these numbers against him. You talked about their matchup in the bubble. Um, I like Jimmy Bucket, Buckets as a player. And you know what? You are better than T.J. Warren. But because of that, rise above this back and forth and quiet him on the court. Uh, besides, Warren has played exceptionally well. Give him his due. Shut him down and prove your point that way. With the series, I'm picking Miami in five games. Uh, the Pacers are exceeding expectations. So they've been plagued with injury. Uh, they played 183. They have 183 uh, missed games this year due to injury. 21 different starting lineups, and, and honestly, I'm surprised that they've they've done this well this year. Uh, now the Pacers don't have their All-Star big man Sabonis, so who looks to be out due to foot injury. I think this because of all of this. Uh, it equates to Miami easily handling Indiana um, in the playoffs. They, they easily handled them, handled them this year with a margin of victory, about 12 points per game. Miami leads the league beyond the arc, 38%, number one at the free throw line. You know, and they beat the Pacers in rebounding this year. So I, I think Jimmy Buckets, Rookie of the Year Ken, candidate Kendrick Nunn, will finish second behind John Morant in the rookie year voting, will make easy work of the Pacers. Yeah, that is true, especially with a unhealthy um, Victor Oladipo. It seems uh, the Pacers have no chance in this series Too many as well. But on to the West, Western Conference, we have, we'll start out with the, the one versus eight seed. We have the one-seeded LA Lakers versus the eight-seeded Portland Trailblazers. Big show. I think... People might get mad at this, but I have the Blazers in six. I love it. They're going to ride the hot hand off this win against the Grizzlies to making it to the playoffs. Bubble MVP Damian Lillard with 51 points in the bubble per game. I think he will take this team to the promised land. CJ McCollum, Yusuf Nurkic, one of the best big men in the league right now, can contain LeBron and Davis in this huge upset for everyone in the NBA. That's a great analysis, K-Dog. You know, I'm usually not excited about a 1-8 matchup. You know, I have no interest really in the Bucks. Magic doesn't excite me, but I'm excited about this one. You know, I'm picking the red-hot Damian Lillard and the Blazers to upset the fake show in six games, so I'm on board with you. You know, uh, the Lakers won the season series two games to one. Game one, Lakers dominated one by 23, led by Davis and James com combining for 70 points. Lakers won the second game, you know, where the bench really uh, outscored Portland's bench significantly by a 72 to 39 margin. You know, and then game three, Blazers win, led by Damian Lillard, 48 points, 10 assists, 9 rebs. And, you know, that's the, the Lillard we've been seeing in the bubble since he missed the two free throws and lost the game against the Clippers. He's been a man on a mission, averaging 37 points a game, almost 10 assists per game, shooting about 50% from the field and 49, uh, 44% from the arc. You know, uh, Lakers don't have 
you know, the, their best perimeter defender, Avery Bradley. So they'll, they'll be uh, challenged trying to guard Lillard, you know, and you can't forget about C.J. McCollum, right? I mean, this dynamic duo has been incredible. And I also like Nurchik in the paint. Uh, plus, Portland's already played for their lives, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the Lakers have been playing for nothing in the seeding round. So I, I think that's a big advantage. When you're playing, you have to play your hardest and your best to save your life and continue on. I think that's a, that's a big difference. You know, for, and, and I think that's one of the primary reasons that I, I'm, I'm picking Portland to up, upset the Lakers because they're, they're ready for the playoffs mm -hmm. and they're ready for prime time. I'm not sure that, that the fake show is ready for prime time and, and, and they're heating up. I mean, that backcourt is incredible. Uh, I don't know how they're going to stop that backcourt and then down low in the post. Like you said, Nurchik is tough. You know, so I, I'm picking Portland, and, you know, we're looking for uh, Jalen Adams, number 10, from St. Bonaventure to uh, hopefully get on the score sheet and, and be a part of all this. So go Bonas. Maybe Jalen, hopefully, finally Jalen Adams could get on the court and score some points for our beloved Bonnies. Well, well, hopefully, if people are watching, they see this, they'll see that this guy can play, and he, he deserves a, a shot to start. In the NBA, so we're rooting for him. Yeah, he showed it in the G League. Uh, he was the G League runner-up. I'm pretty sure he had close to 30 points per game and about seven assists per game. He could definitely play for the Nets right now if he had the choice, but good luck to him and the rest of the Blazers. The fake show is in trouble for this one, I think. Yeah, yeah. in the words of Charles Barkley, Dame's coming after you. And it, w it would be excellent if they could beat the... Uh, the Lakers and set up a matchup with the LA Clippers. That would be awesome. Oh, especially the feud between Paul George and Damian Lillard. That would be an interesting matchup. On to our next series in the Western Conference. We have the number two LA Clippers versus the number seven Dallas Mavericks. This one, I have the Clippers in five. A fully loaded Clippers squad takes care of the Mavs handily. The Clippers swept the season series 3-0 this year. I'll give the Mavs one game because Doncic has MVP numbers as well as Porzingis putting up double double huge double-double numbers every game. But I think Kawhi, PG-13, Lou Will, Den uh, Montrezl Harrell will take care of business in this series. Yeah, I look forward to this matchup. I think it'll be a very entertaining series with the Clips. They have excellent defense versus the Mavs' high-scoring offense. I think you know where I'm going with this. I've said in the in on the show the the Mavs won't go far in the playoffs because they don't play enough D. Zero defense. Zero defense. You know that being said, it, it's it's the um, you know it's the end of the road for for the young Mavs. Although I like I like their team. I think the Clips beat them in five games. Uh, L.A. swept the season series, as you said, three zip. I, I don't think much will change. L.A. led by, in my opinion, the best player in the NBA, Kawhi Leonard. That's right, the best player in, the, in L.A. and the league in Kawhi Leonard. Uh, sorry, LeBron, but it's not you. Uh, the Clips outscored the Mavs by 38 points in 103 minutes with Kawhi on the court, while Mavs were plus five in 41 minutes off the, when Kawhi was off the court. Kind of all you need to know. Clips also have Paul George, but as as I've said before, Clips are only going as far as Kawhi takes them. You know, Paul George is along for the ride. 
as he's been for most of his career, in my opinion. The Mavs are fun to watch. You talked about Luca and Porzingis. I mean, these guys, they're going to be tough going forward. Mm-hmm. You know, if they get a little bit, they get a little bit more experience, you know, and they'll gain that experience uh, in this series for next year. And I just think the experienced Clippers will beat the young Mavs. But, you know, look out for the Mavs next year. You know, they'll, yeah. they'll get this playoff experience. They'll be tough. Mavs will be a huge threat next year, in my opinion. On to our next series, we have the three versus six matchup. The three-seeded Denver Nuggets take on the six-seeded Utah Jazz. I have the Nuggets in five this in this series. The Nuggets swept the wow. season series 3-0. They recently won in a thriller in the bubble, 132 to 134. It seems all the games will be close, I think, based on the regular season scores and the last game in the bubble that they played against each other. But I think Denver will come out winners. When healthy, it's hard to stop the likes of Jamal Murray and arguably the best center in the league, Jokic, putting up triple doubles every almost every game. Yeah, that's that's uh you think that that Denver and five, huh? Well, I think this is a toss-up series. Either team can win, and I, I wouldn't be surprised who won this series. The teams are pretty evenly ma- matched, and, you know, I'm picking the Nuggets too, but I'm not picking them in five. I'm picking them in seven games. Mm-hmm. Here's why. Denver season series, three games to none. They won. The series was close in terms of score, with Denver winning all three games by 11 points, and and that's why I think it's going to go seven. All three games were five-point games with five minutes to go. Stats show Nuggets better in crunch time with their clutch shooting. Nuggets scored 60 points on 50 critical possessions versus Jazz, 34 points on 46 critical possessions. While um, Donovan Mitchell, you know, he's been clutch shooting eight for 18, three for six from the arc against the Nuggets. The rest of the team has been pedestrian going two for 19. Uh, I like the Rudy Gobert versus Jokic matchup. Will be fun to watch. Gobert going for third straight defensive player of the year versus Jokic, who's uh, scored 88 points in three games. I like uh, Jokic and, and Michael Porter in this series. Slight edge to the Nuggets in seven games. Yeah, I think the Nuggets have more experience as well as they were a three-seed last year, I'm pretty sure. But on to our last series in the Western Conference. We have the four-seeded Houston Rockets versus the five-seeded Oklahoma City Thunder. This one, I have an upset, the Thunder in six. I think the Rockets give up too many points. They give up 110.4 points per game, and I think it catches up to them here. I think also the height advantage of OKC takes overall with Steven Adams. The overall height lineup for the Rockets is about 6'5 or 6'6. That will not compare to Steven Adams, 7 foot tall, as well as the other power forwards and centers in OKC. I think the young veteran duo of Shy Gilgis Alexander and CP3 is deadly and brings them to an upset this series, but uh, and the Thunder also won the series 2-1 this season. K-Dog, I, I agree with you. I don't think the um, Mike D'Antoni small ball will win this series. I'm calling for the OKC upset as well. I think this is a tough one to pick. You have Houston with two all-star guards in Harden, Westbrook. Chris Paul on the other side, who was traded by Houston to OKC for Westbrook. 
the Chris Paul, Russ Westbrook is a storyline, you know, and I'm going to pick the Thunder in this one. Six games. Some of it may be that I'm rooting for Chris Paul in this one. Um, you know, I'm hoping that uh, if he wins, my State Farm bill will go down. Looking at the numbers, OKC beat Houston two out of three. Westbrook is questionable with a white, uh, right quadricep injury. I'm sure he'll play, but don't know how effective he will be. If he can't drive the lane, which is a big part of his game, that, that'll be a problem. The Thunder have the best record in the NBA in games of five points or less in the, in the last five minutes of the game uh, with Chris Paul. Dennis uh, Schroeder up for sixth man of the year. Alexander and Gallinari ranking at the top of the league in games played during clutch time. You know, the Rockets are 19 and 13 in clutch time uh, compared to the um, Oklahoma City Thunder. You know, so they have a top five. They'll slow down that top five offense, I think. The Thunder have been successful in slowing them down. Rockets shoot less than 30% from the arc in all three games and attempted only 31 total free throws in their losses. You know, sure, James Harden will get his 30 to 40 points per game, but who cares? He's a great shot player. I think Paul, Steven Adams, as you said, I don't think anybody's going to compete with him in the paint. And Schroeder and the OKC depth outlast the Rockets. Dan Tony, the Rockets won't have liftoff due to thunder in the area. The launch is scrapped and the uh, thunder move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Oklahoma City Thunder is one of the best uh, stories this season. I don't think anyone thought that they would be close to a five seed i personally i thought they'd be like 20 games under 500 but it seems that they're ready to go for this playoff series i agree with you k dog i I didn't think much of okc i thought you know once westbrook jumped ship didn't know how much chris ball had left in the tank didn't think okc would be competitive whatsoever this year certainly didn't think they'd make the playoffs but they've surprised me as as well as uh, i'm sure they've surprised others uh, that look at the NBA and try to predict who's going to make the playoffs. Yeah, the NBA is starting to heat up now. Playoffs coming soon. But now on to our predictions for the NHL playoffs second round. We'll start in the East, and we'll start with the the three versus six seed, obviously. The, uh, the three-seeded Washington Capitals take on our six-seeded New York Islanders. I think the the Islanders will win this series. They've come off a fresh series win in the Florida Panthers, dominant series win, if the, in fact. And they bring that momentum into this series. The hot hand of Beauvillier and Anders Lee bring this team to a series win. Also, the great goaltending by Varlamov will also help them in this series. Listen, K-Dog, we picked the Isles to beat Florida. They looked impressive doing so, led by their defense and goaltending. We recapped the Panthers' series last week and noted a balanced offensive attack and the typical Islanders' defense and goaltending that controlled the series. Meanwhile, the Caps looked disinterested at times during the seeding round, with their biggest stars not having much of an impact and finished third. For this reason, I'm picking the Isles to beat the Caps in seven games. Obviously, the Caps have the offensive advantage with league-leading goal scorer Ovechkin, top line including Kuznetsov and Wilson. 
This top line is high scoring and physical. Uh, Caps also have Oshie and Backstrom on second line. The Isles don't have a line that is as dynamic as the Ovechkin line, but that's not the Islanders' game. You know, however, the Isles scored more than uh, their season average against Florida, and even had a power play. You know, nevertheless, edge to the Caps on the offense. However, I think that's when the where the edge stops. The Isles' strength is the blue line, starting with Adam Pellick whose importance was clearly evident by his absence during the regular season when the Isles tanked without him and how good they were in the qualifier with him. The blue line is deep with Boychuk, Letty, and Pulak, Andy Green, and Noah Dobson waiting in the wings if needed. Washington has quality blue liners with Carlson, who's back from injury, and Brendan Dillon, but Isles are significantly better. You also think Isles have gold, the goaltending edge with Varley over Holpe. Holpe had one of his worst statistical seasons this year at age 30. And Caps, backup Samsonoff is unavailable. On the flip side, Varley has a 9.32 save percentage, 1.77 goals against first Panthers. Give Isles edge and goal as well. I expect Isles hockey will prevail in a hard-fought seven-game series and Barry gets his revenge on the Washington Capitals. Uh, yeah, ex, ex-Capitals coach Barry Trotz will, I think, get the series win. We'll go more into depth into the two games that have already finished with the Isles later in the show, but on to our next series prediction. We have the one-seeded Philadelphia Flyers versus the eight-seeded Montreal Canadiens. I think the Flyers win this series... The goaltending of Carter Hart and the veteran power of Claude Giroux and Kevin Hayes, ex-Ranger, helps these helps this team push through the Canadians. The Flyers won the regular se- se- season series two out of the three games. I think that they push through and they win this series and move on to the next round. K-Dog, I didn't think the Habs would be here, but they upset Pittsburgh to face Philly. It's hard for me to pick a team that I didn't think would win the round before, but depending on the matchup, I may. However, this is not the matchup. I'm picking Philadelphia Flyers in six games. I believe a hot goalie can carry a team in the playoffs, and Carey Price was excellent in round one, but the Flyers have a, a bigger body of work than Pittsburgh. They were thriving before the pause and continued the momentum by winning the seeding round. Flyers' first line is really good, led by Claude Giroux. Second line is strong, led by Kevin Hayes. Habs don't have the offense to match up with Philly. Habs' defense is strong, led by Shea Weber. And obviously the backbone of the defense, Carey Price, is rock solid. Philly also has good goaltending with young Carter Hart. Uh, the offensive advantage and solid goaltending puts Philly over the Canadians, unless Carey Price stands on his head again, which is very possible, um, I, I think Philadelphia wins this again. Yeah, I think the Flyers take this series. On to our next one, we have the two-seeded Tampa Bay Lightning versus the seven-seeded Blue Jackets. Uh, I think Columbus. I think Columbus wins this series in an upset. Wow. I think the goaltending wins this series, and personally. The duo of Elvis and Corpusello is better than Vasilevsky and company. Even though the Lightning have a star-studded lineup, they always find a way to choke recently in playoff history. I think 
the Blue Jackets take this one. Good call, K-Dog. I picked Columbus over the Maple Laughs for a couple reasons, and I'm going to pick them to win this series in seven games for the same reasons. The Jackets' fork checking is relentless and gave Toronto fits. CBJ shut down Toronto, limiting them to 10 goals in five games and only three at full strength. You know, those are Islanders-type numbers. Listen, Lightning should win this series. They have more offensive depth with Braden Point, Nikita Kucherov, and Palat. Both defenses are solid. You know, they, they um, you know, the... Tampa has the Norris Trophy nominee, Victor Hedman. He's questionable. If he doesn't play, that would be significant. The goaltending for both teams is solid. Tampa has the reigning Vesna Trophy winner in Vasilevsky. And, you know, he's a nominee again this year. But don't count out CBA, CBJ's dynamic duo. If Corpusalo and Elvis, with Corpusalo and Elvis, uh, Corpusalo was excellent against the high-powered Leafs. With a 9.56 save percentage and a 195 goals against, two shutouts and four starts, what else can a goalie do? Uh, lastly, CBJ melted down in Game 4 of the qualifier against Toronto, giving up those three goals in the last four minutes. Mm-hmm. In an Atlanta Falcons-type collapse, you know, I wrote their obituary because I didn't think they could possibly rebound from that devastating loss, but they showed their resiliency and beat Toronto in Game 5. You know, I think that says something for this team's medal, and as a result, I'm picking the Jackets to beat Tampa in the playoffs like they did last year. Yeah, Tampa's going to choke again, probably. I don't see them winning this series based on the previous historical playoff series in the past three years i believe on to our last prediction in the the eastern conference we have the four-seeded boston bruins versus the five-seeded carolina hurricanes i think the hurricanes win this series tuka rask just recently opted out of the series and out of the season that's a huge hit for the goaltending in in boston and now Halak is their best goalie, which he's decent, but I don't think he could prevail to bring this team to the series win. I think uh, the Hurricanes have the better goaltending now in Mrazek and Reimer. They played well in net for the Canes in the first round, and I think it leads to the second round. And the star power of Aho, Nita Ryder, and the old Ranger Brady Shea brings this team to the upset. It's interesting you picked the Canes because you didn't pick them in round one against the uh, Rangers. However, you know, the, I didn't either, uh, but the Canes impressed me in the qualifier, easily dispensing of the Rangers in four games on the heels of great goaltending the scoring of number 20, Sebastian Ajo. Meanwhile, Boston was not impressive in the seeding round. They struggled. I'm picking the Canes to pay back Boston for last year's Eastern Conference loss. And I think they'll beat Boston in seven games. Both teams feature a strong first line. I mean, Boston's got Brad Marchand, Patrice Bergeron, and the Dunkin' Donuts man, David Pasternak. Uh, Pasta led the league in goals with Ovechkin. Uh, Kane's counter with Aho and Svechnikov, which combined for six goals and 13, game, three, and 13 points in three games, which is excellent. 
great young duo. Uh, the Canes' defense may get a lift with the return of Dougie Hamilton, which would be significant if he comes back. Bruins' D is equally solid, led by Chara, Coyle, Krug, and Carlo. Uh, both teams have solid goaltending with Rask for Boston and another tandem for the Canes with Reimer and Morozik, both excellent against the Rangers. I think the Canes have momentum and chemistry that Boston hasn't regained. For that reason, I'm picking uh, the Carolina Hurricanes, and I'm making our relatives in, that live in Carolina and root for the Hurricanes happy with that one. Yeah, great prediction by us, I think. I think the Hurricanes will come out with that win. But on to the West Western Conference, we have, we'll start with the one-seeded Golden Knights versus the eight-seeded Blackhawks. The Knights win this series. I, I picked the Blackhawks to win last series. They did, but I don't think they show up. They don't show they don't show the star power to beat the Golden Knights this series. I think the Knights are one of the best teams in the NHL right now, and they're going to show it in this series. Uh, Flurry and Net and the high-powered scoring of Marchessault and Stone shows why this team isn't just a fluke in the past. Yeah, I always get confused when you reference the Golden Knights because I think of the real Golden Knights, the Clarkson University <laughs> Golden Knights. However, we're talking NHL, so you're talking about the Vegas Golden Knights. I get it. So in this series, you know, I picked Chicago to beat Edmonton in round one. We, You and I both did, but that's where it ends for Chicago. Chicago's a very talented and experienced team led by Taze, Kane, uh, you know, and, and, and Rookie of the Year finalist Dominic Kubelik. Um, Taze was excellent in the qualifiers with seven points. Kerry Crawford was equally as good leading them over Edmonton. But I think Vegas is tough. If Max Pacioretty is ready to play, that would be significant for Vegas but still have enough offense with Stone, Stevenson, and Carlson. Never mind, they have Marcia Saul, Riley Smith, and Stasny uh, on, on the, their other lines. You know, this is a significant advantage for the Knights. The goaltending goal storyline is a good story with Robert, Robin Leonard facing his old team after being traded at the deadline. And we know what Leonard could do. Mm -hmm. Leonard was excellent for the Isles last year. And he can put a team on his back like he did last year. Plus, he has a little extra incentive facing his former team that traded him. I think it's the end of the line for the Hawks. Leonard gets his revenge, and Vegas moves on. Yeah, Robin Leonard, ex-Islander. Hopefully he goes far. Maybe we could play them in the Stanley Cup Finals. Who knows? That, but that would be awesome. That would be an interesting concept for the Islanders and the Vegas Golden Knights but on to our next series we have the two-seeded Colorado Avalanche versus the seven-seed Arizona Coyotes I think the A Avalanche will win this series handily the Avs have the fourth best goals per game and 3.37 goals per game they have Grubauer and Net, which is huge for the Avs as well as Frank Kuz Nathan McKinnon and Miko Ratninen uh, fill out the high-flying offense. It's hard to see the Coyotes winning this series, especially because I didn't have them winning the first series, the play-in series. Yeah, I didn't pick Arizona to win the qualifier, and I will not pick them to win this series either. I think this will be the most lopsided series, resulting in, that, in an avalanche sweep, four games to zip. 
Colorado. I think Colorado could come out of the Western Conference. Mm-hmm. I think they're really one of two teams that are serious contenders to come out of the Western Conference. They look good in the seeding play. The Coyotes goalie, Darcy Kemper, stood on his head against Nashville with a 9.33 save percentage, facing 163 shots in that series. I don't see that happening again. I think the off, the Avs offense is too strong for the Coyotes, led by McKinnon, Landis Skog, and Ratanen, as you had mentioned. They'll be too much for Arizona and Kemper, you know, and Kemper has to be fatigued from facing a shooting gallery in the qualifier. The Avalanche march towards the conference final, and, and they dispose of the uh, Coyotes. Yeah, I think the Avs take this one easily. On to our next series, we have the three-seeded Dallas Stars versus the six-seeded Calgary Flames. I have the Stars in this series, another good goaltending team in the Stars, only giving up 2.5 goals per game in the season, which is second best in the NHL. Ben Bishop and Kudobin are those are those are behind those numbers. The offensive prowess of Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan is outstanding. Flames could give them a run for their money, but I don't see it. I think the Dallas Stars take this. K Dog, I'm I'm with you. You know, for me, this is like the least intriguing intriguing matchup. You know, I didn't pick the Flames in the qualifier. I thought the Jets and Hellebuck would would oust the Flames. I was wrong with that. Dallas was one and two in the seeding round. Didn't look great, but I'm going to pick Dallas like you in six games. You know, you talked about Dallas's offense. It's been a little stagnant with uh, Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan not producing as expected. You know, and Sagan was out of the lineup during the seeding round, but expected to return in, in uh, round one of the playoffs, which will be a big lift for them. The Calgary offense has two top lines that are pretty balanced, led by Sean Monahan and Matt Kachuk, respectively. Uh, Calgary has the offense advantage. Dallas has the defense and goaltending advantage, which is why they will win. Stars' defense is led by 20-year-old, 21-year-old Jamie Olasek and um, the defense pairing of Essa Lindell and Kleinberg. Stars have an excellent goaltending duo with Ben Bishop and Anton Kubadin. Uh, Bishop has a robust 927 save percentage. I don't see Cam Talbot being as good as he was in the qualifier because he was incredible. You just can't be as good as he was in the qualifier. Mm-hmm. D and goaltending wins, which is why I'm picking the Stars to shine in this one, and Dallas to Flames. And the last series in the Western Conference, we go with the four-seeded St. Louis Blues versus the five-seeded Vancouver Canucks. In this, I have the Canucks upsetting the Blues this series. I think the Canucks are a faster team, and if you outpace a team, you can win games in those series. I think speed is big in the NHL. I think the goaltending of Markstrom and the young talent of Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes brings the offensive power and goal scoring, as well as the captain, Bo Horvat. I think he brings his team more power and brings it to a series win. The hardest thing to do is dethrone the champions. I didn't expect the Canucks to advance, but they handled the Wild easily in four games. The Blues looked shaky in losing all three games in the seeding round. 
being outscored 6 nothing in the third period. The question is, will St. Louis be ready to play when it counts? I'm going to say no, and I'm picking the Canucks to dethrone the defending champs in seven games. The Canucks have offensive firepower with a strong first line, as you talked about, J.T. Miller, Brock Besser, and Elias Pedersen. Um, this line is a force. Second line is strong as well. You talked about Bo Horvat, the captain. Uh, Vancouver has the face-off advantage with Horvat and Jay Beagle. The Blues have the advantage on the D, in my opinion, with Petrangelo and Gunnarsson. I'd also say they have the advantage in goal with Bennington, but he wasn't as good in the regular season as last year's postseason with only a 3.25 goals against. Meanwhile, Jacob Markstrom was excellent in the qualifying round for Vancouver, posting a 9.26 save percentage. If Bennington plays like he did last playoffs, Blues will win. The problem is he won't, thus the champs are dethroned and the Canucks move on. Now on to the recaps of the two Islanders playoff games that have happened already against the Capitals. We'll start off with game one. The Islanders won game one 4-2. The two goals Varlamov uh, gave up were all off the power play, which I said in the previous series that they needed to work on. Obviously, they, they didn't to start off the series against the Caps. Regardless, he had a 92.3 save percentage. The Isles were down 2-1 going into the third. And with the help of the captain, Anders Lee, Josh Bailey, and the hot hand of Anthony Beauvillier, they came out with the win. Four unanswered goals is unreal for the Isles, in my opinion, because they usually don't score a lot. But that was a huge game one for the Islanders. Yeah, I love the Isles rewind when they win. You know, the weekend review featured two incredible wins against the Caps in round one to surprisingly go up two games to nothing. You know, there's a lot to talk about here. You started talking about it already. The Caps, Isles, they have a lot of history. And game one starts the next chapter of what has been an excellent rivalry over the years. Let's talk about game one and, and walk through a little bit of that because the tone of the series is set really early. 2.33 into the first period, Isles captain Anders Lee hits Nicholas Backstrom, knocks him out of the game. Washington views the hit as dirty and predatory as described by Caps coach and players. This set the tone for a rough and tumble series. The Caps immediately came to Backstrom's aid with John Carlson going after Anders Lee. Both get roughing penalties, but Caps' retaliation wasn't finished. You know, 17 minutes into the first period, Tom Wilson goes after Anders Lee as retaliation for the Backstrom hit, challenges Lee to a fight. You know, Wilson gets the best of Anders in, in the bout, but let's talk about this for a minute because this will be a turning point of the series if the Isles win this series. First, we got to talk about the hit on Backstrom. You know, the Caps believe it was dirty and have a right to that opinion. Yes, the hit was late. Yes, Backstrom didn't have the puck. And yes, he wasn't looking. Was it a dirty, predatory play? The answer is no. 
Anders Lee is not a dirty, predatory player, and if you've watched him, you know that. If you saw the hit, Anders Lee slowed up, and after the hit, he hit him, his body language demonstrated that he tried to slow up but couldn't avoid and stop the momentum. You know, I don't begrudge Tom Wilson for going after Anders Lee. You know, K-Dog, we talked about physical, being physical to try and intimidate. Mm-hmm. On prior episodes, we talked a lot about the Flyers and the Islanders of the 70s and 80s and how their tough guys wouldn't let you take liberties with their best players. Well, that's what Tom Wilson did. In a throwback style of play, Wilson got his pound of flesh and got the best of Anders, but I think you know it may have backfired and uh, gave the Isles momentum, oddly enough. The reason is that Anders Lee is not a fighter. He's a big, strong guy that has mixed it up before, but he's not a fighter. He's a guy that fearlessly goes in the corners and in front of the net, willing to take the beating that goes along with that, but he's not a fighter. Nevertheless, he didn't dodge Wilson or back down from him. He sent a message to Wilson, the Caps, and the, and the NHL that I'm not going to be intimidated by a physical fighting style. That said a lot about the captain demonstrated leadership that teammates will rally around. I was critical of the Islanders signing him to to his seven-year deal because he has average skills, but he showed me why they did because this guy's a leader, and that's a quality that you can't replace. He has my respect and, and certainly the respect of his teammates. Ironically, I thought the Caps had a physical advantage but Anders Lee may have shifted that momentum. Um, you know, the first period of this game ended scorelessly. But before we go away from the hit, you know, I want to talk a little bit about history because I don't want to hear the Caps fans complain about a cheap, dirty, predatory hit because one of their own was behind the cheapest shot I've ever seen by a player in an NHL uniform. So let's turn back the clock to 1993, K-Dog. You know, you and I looked at this film mm-hmm. uh, this weekend. And let's look at the 1993 Caps-Isles playoff series. You know, going back to game six at the Coliseum, just to give you some background, the Isles are up three games to two. The Isles are blowing the Caps out in game six. They're up 4-1. In the third period, about eight minutes left in the game, they're on the way to clinching the series in front of a raucous Nassau Coliseum crowd, right? Like I said, about eight minutes left in the game, Washington's Dale Hunter had the puck stolen away from him by the Isles superstar Pierre Turgeon. Turgeon proceeded to put the puck past the Caps goalie, making it 5-1 and closing out the series. After Turgeon scored and was celebrating, skating towards the boards, facing the crowd, Dale Hunter comes out of nowhere from behind and hit him into the boards. The hit separated Turgeon's shoulder, ended his playoff run, significantly hurt the Isles' playoff run as they were favorites with Turgeon in the lineup. Turgeon was never the same again after that hit. If you've never seen it, You need to watch what a cheap, dirty, predatory play is. Because that's Dale Hunter. That's not Anders Lee. So, you know, Ken Dog, I mean, you saw Mm -hmm. saw that. I showed it to you. I said, you got got to watch this. Yeah, it's a 
it's not even a competition between Anders Lee and this guy. Anders Lee, the puck was close to Backstrom on that play. This was a post-goal celebration, and it was just disgusting in my opinion. Yeah, so moving on to the second period, right? Um, you know, the Caps get on the board early with uh, two goals by T.J. Oshie. And, you know, the Islanders are a team that can't play from behind, um, you know, and it, it looked as though the Isles would be in trouble because the Caps were fired up after the hit. They're up two games to nothing. I mean, two goals to nothing. Um, you know, so you don't think that they're necessarily going to come come back from from that. But, but they did. You know, Jordan Eberle put the Isles on the board with about a minute left in the second which seemed to spark the aisles because the third period was just all aisles. You know, they opened up the scoring, scoring 57 seconds into third in a tying, you know, to tie the game off a goal by who else but Anders Lee. The captain ties it up. I'm sure that didn't sit well with the caps. Then the goal that sucked the life at, out of the caps by Josh Bailey shorthanded, giving them a 3-2 lead that the aisles would not relinquish. The aisles put the game away with a goal by Bo. Beauvillier at 11:55 of the third, and that's his fourth of the postseason. I mean, he's been pl- he's been on fire, playing exceptionally well. The Isles end up out hitting and out shooting the Caps af- after being outshot in the first period. You know, and then they just played lockdown defense after going down two zip. Yeah, that was a big win for the Isles. On to game two, the Isles won game two, five to two. It was a very back-and-forth game to start out with Ovechkin scoring 56 56 seconds into the game. I thought we were in trouble there, but then Letty tied it up on their one out of seven power play goals on attempts. That's no good if they want to compete in the future power play-wise, but back-to-back goals by Matt Martin and Ovechkin tied up once again, but that's where it stopped. The Isles scored two unanswered, starting with a beautiful breakaway goal by Brock Nelson. And then after that, the Islanders were in full control. At the end of the game, it looked like Ovechkin was very frustrated after the game, only having the two goals to show for the game. Yeah, no, this um, was a back-and-forth game. No fisticuffs, but rough game nevertheless. You talked about the Caps coming out quick with OV scoring a minute into the game. You know, and the Caps were very physical. Tom Wilson continued his physical play. He was hitting everything in sight. As long as it was moving, he was hitting it. You know, uh, the Isles came out strong again in the second period. And you talked about uh, scoring on the, tying it up three minutes in, Nick Letty on the power play. You know, and then they took the 2-1 lead with, you know, uh, with a, a goal from an unlikely source, Matt Martin. However, it was short-lived, right, because Ovechkin came right back and scored again. And then 15 seconds later, Brock Nelson scores, lights the lamp. You know, and the Isles dominated third, the third period and built on their lead with goals by Pajot and Lee. Again, the Isles outshot, outhit the Caps. I think the momentum has shifted, and the Isles are actually being more physical in the Caps. You know, I love Pajot challenging Konetsov to the to a fight after Konetsov clearly hit him from behind, but uh, Konetsov didn't want didn't want to dance. You know the Isles are surprisingly up two zip, 
by being physical, which you know I you know I criticize them quite a bit for not being physical. You know, playing solid D with great goaltending by Varley and, and timely scoring. You know, so exciting first two games. Can't wait for game three, but this is what hockey's all about. Mm-hmm. It seems like the Isles aren't going to back down to anyone this year. Hopefully they can make a title run finally. Since the last time they played, they lost in the second round in the playoffs, but hopefully it seems that they could make a push this year. Now on to our next topic. We have another edition of the top five. I love top five. Top five, top five, top five. And this edition of the top five, we have the top five worst uniforms. And I'll start it off with the MLB. And I'm going to go with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Turn forward the clock uniforms. These uniforms debuted in 1999 for one game only. Thank God they were only one game because these things were absolutely atrocious. They just stamped a big pirate logo on on the front of the jersey. All over the chest, along with the colors, they make it one of the worst uniforms to date. Yeah, that was pr- pretty ugly. But um, for my for my worst uniforms by a baseball team, I'm going with the 1976 Chicago White Sox softball uniforms yeah, with shorts. I mean, th- those are the all-time worst, right? So bicentennial year 1976, White Sox owner Bill Veck had one of his many crazy ideas. Now, Bill Veck was the guy who signed Eddie Goodell, who was three foot seven inches tall and wore uniform number one eighth. You know, and he walked on four pitches in his only plate appearance. You know, Veck was crazy. He also hired Max Patkin, a professional baseball clown as a bench coach. You know, and then the the all-time worst was, you know, 1979 disco demolition night which resulted in, a, in a, a, a riot, and they lit Comiskey Park on fire, and the White Sox had to forfeit the game. You know, on the, other, on the other hand, he also was a trailblazer. So Vec owned the Cleveland Indians, who, who, signed the, who signed Larry Doby in 1947, breaking the American League color barrier. He also signed Satchel Paige at age 42, became the oldest rookie in the MLB. And, and Vec also introduced player names on the back of the uniform. So he's done some good things. Unfortunately, his shorts uniform was not one of those brilliant moments. In 1976 at the Tremont Hotel in Chicago, the Hollywood shorts uniforms, as he called them, were introduced. So the Sunday morning softball unis had a giant black collar like a 70s leisure suit against a white blouse type jersey with a team name arched in Tucson style font with midnight blue shorts. Uh, there were three different style pants. They could either wear clam diggers, which are similar today to today's baseball pants, or knickerbocker short pants with high socks, and then the, the Hollywood shorts, which were named which were short pant unis previously worn by the minor league Hollywood stars of the Pacific Coast League in the 50s. So that's where he really got those short shorts from. Uh, The Chai Sox debuted the shorts on August 8, 1976 in the first game of doubleheader against the Royals. They wore the shorts for three games, went two and one. And, you know, a fun fact is that Jack Brohammer is the only player ever to hit hit a home run wearing shorts in in Major League Baseball. 
And mm. uh, I think they should leave the shorts for the beer leagues because th- those uniforms were atrocious. Yeah, those things are absolutely disgusting. But on to our, uh, the next jersey I have is from the NFL. It's the Jacksonville Jaguars color rush uniforms from a few years ago. First of all, the team was absolutely terrible. Pretty sure they only had three wins that year. And then you had to add insult to injury and put them in the ugly mustard yellow uniforms. Ugly. Don't know who picked these colors, but please don't pick them again. These are absolutely terrible. Yeah, K-Dog, those uh, uniforms were ugly. I mean, some of these color rush and throwback uniforms really shouldn't be worn, overdoing them, and and that's a case in point. Um, For the worst NFL uniform, I chose the Pittsburgh Steelers Bumblebee uniforms (laughs) that they wore from 2012 to 2016. Now, I was torn between the Bumblebee Steelers and the Browns because the Browns uniforms are historically hideous, but I'll have a Cleveland team in my top five worst unis, but it's just not going to be the Browns. The Steelers introduced the Bumblebee uniform in 2012 as part of their 80th anniversary. The the Bumblebee is exactly as it sounds, horizontal, alternating gold and black stripes with light gold pants. The uniform looks like a prison chain gang uniform, has these big block numbers on the jersey, just like a prisoner's numbers on the chain gang uniform. If you're Burt Reynolds in the longest yard, it's a great uniform, but not for an NFL team. Mercifully, the uniforms were retired in 2016 because fans despised the uniform. And Pittsburgh's throwback uniforms became based on the steel curtain teams of the 70s. Smart move, Pittsburgh. Yeah, that's very smart by them. Thank God they got rid of those Bumblebee uniforms. But on to the NHL. I know we have the same jersey in mind for this one. It's the Vancouver Canucks 1970s, 1980s unis. These things are absolutely horrendous. It's a V on on the front of the jersey, and that's basically it. They couldn't have tried less with this uniform. The red and yellow don't go together either. I hope to God Vancouver doesn't bring these back. And surprisingly enough, the V on the uniform doesn't stand for Vancouver. It stands for victory, which happened little to none in the 70s and 80s for the Canucks. Yeah, so yeah, we, we agree with this one. And you know, anyone who knows NHL history would have to say this is the worst jersey they wore from 78 to 85, the Flying V jersey. They were introduced in the summer of 78. The Canucks hired a San Francisco-based marketing firm called Beal and Boyd to, d- to design a new uni. They thought the current colors of blue and green was too calm and recommended the changing to yellow and orange. You know, as part of the Flying V, they created a diagonal skate logo drawn with 18 diagonal lines and the words Canucks below it. The logo is still referred to as the spaghetti plate and the downhill skate. You know, they had the bright yellow home jersey featuring the large V as you talked about, K-Dog. And then they had two smaller Vs on the sleeves. They also had Vs on the the pants and the Mm -hmm. socks. And they had a total of seven, seven of these Vs throughout the uniform. And then the numbers were on the bottom of the sleeves instead of on the, on the shoulder as they, they traditionally are. They wore these uniforms uh, 
when they lost the cup to our beloved Islanders in 82. Islanders beat them four games to zip. Thank you, Vancouver. You know, and I usually like a lot of color, but these are a colorful mess, more like a Halloween costume than anything else. These uniforms were made for black and white TV. Please don't bring these back for retro night. They're awful. Yeah, these are probably one of the worst uniforms of all time, in my opinion, in all the sports. But next, I'll go on to NBA uniforms, and I'm going to go with the Golden State Warriors 2012 sleeved unis. Oh, boy. These bright gold atrocities debuted in 2012, and wow, the shorts with the blue stripes on them also look horrible, and they should have taken the logo off because they have the, the Golden State Warriors logo with the name on it. They should have just left the Warriors on it, ditched the logo, and a note to the NBA, don't ever bring the sleeved unis back. These are one of the worst tries at changing the uniforms ever. Even LeBron in 2016 cut the sleeves against the, the Warriors to try and get an edge, and it seemed it worked, but do not bring the sleeved unis back ever. Yeah, I'm not big on the sleeved uniforms for the NBA. I think uh, in the NCAA, the Evansville Aces wear sleeved uniforms. Maybe they've changed that, but I think at one time they I, did. I think they still might. They still might. But anyway, the, the, I don't like the sleeved uniforms. Uh, my uh, For the worst uniform NBA uniform, I'm picking the Cleveland Cavaliers from 1980 and 1981. Oh. <laughs> I told you I'd get back to having a Cleveland team in the top five worst uniforms. It just wasn't the Browns. But I put the Browns already in the top five worst in numerous categories, so I'm going to give them a break. Instead, I chose their basketball brothers, the Cavs. The Cavs have historically had really bad uniforms. The hard part was choosing which era was the worst. In 1981, the Cavs wore these beige uniforms with wine-color lettering spelling out Cleveland on the, across the chest with a white stripe beneath the name Cleveland, and then a wine-colored stripe between beneath the white stripe. Beneath the wine-colored stripe is the player number, also in wine color. It seems that someone just had some extra material, material around and used it to make these uniforms. Thankfully, the vomit uniforms only lasted until 1983. Unfortunately, Cleveland continued to have bad uniform after bad uniform there, but these were the worst. I mean, somebody's got to help Cleveland come up with a, a, a nice uniform. You know, you figure that with the Cavaliers, you can come up with some nice colors, good logo, but for, for some reason, Cleveland can't seem to do that. You know, I guess they're following in the Browns' footsteps. Yeah, Browns' unis are also ugly, but on to our last uniform I picked in the NCAA I picked the Michigan State alternate 2019 uniforms you really can't make this up they combined the dark forest green for the top of the the jersey and the neon green for the pants these are possibly the one of the worst uniforms ever especially in the NCAA and whoever made these forgot to make the font smaller on the ugly state across the chest yeah, those uh, certainly are ugly uniforms. But I am going to the University of Maryland 
and the 2011 Pride football uniforms. These uniforms couldn't be any uglier. The uniforms were inspired by characteristics specific to the Maryland state flag and the University of Maryland. The helmet and the uniforms have half the flag on one side, half of the other part of the flag on the other side. It just looked like they grabbed two random patterns and put them together. On one side, they have the black and yellow checkers, kind of like a, a checkered race flag. The other side of the uniform is red and white with the Calvert and Crossland coat of arms print on it. The helmet is congested and just ugly. These uniforms are made by Under Armour. The founder of Under Armour, Kevin Plank, is a Maryland alumnus, and he was a walk-on football player at Maryland. I guess Maryland and Oregon are having the ugliest uni wars because Oregon has also had some unsightly uniforms. But Under Armour's pride uniform is the worst of the worst. You know, so I'm going down to College Park to rub Testudo's nose, wishing they go back to the basics and change these horrible uniforms. Yeah, those unis are not good, but... Back to Oregon. I personally like most of their uniforms. I know you don't like those. Uh, I, don't, I don't like those. But I personally like them. On to our next topic. We're going into the MLB, the Mets, Mets and Yankees weekend review. The, we'll start with the Mets. The Mets record to finish off this week is 9-14, and which gives them fourth in the East, one away from the cellar behind, in front of the Nationals. For the Mets, it's just it's the same thing same all the thing. time. 13 errors on the season. The defense looks horrible, especially the outfield. They have the worst batting average in the league with runners in scoring position. They strike out way too much. All their losses seem close, and they just can't find a way to produce a win. Mats is horrible. 9.0 ERA as the second starter. That can't happen whatsoever. The team looks passionless and heartless it's a terrible look for them the bullpen is still shaky but i'll give a few hots for the mets the young kid david peterson out of oregon is three and one with a 2.9 era which is better than the uh, the yankees ace and garrett cole as he has about a three out era but and the second hot i have for the mets is luis guillorme at 25 years old, he looks like he's finally hitting his stride with a 455 batting average. I know the sample size is small, but wow, that's interesting for Guillaume. And another down for the Mets is Rosario. He's looking not too hot with a 200 batting average and 14 Ks back from the IL. Okay, dog, it's a, it's a lot more fun talking about Islanders rewind than Mets rewind. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you know, with with the Mets, it, it's like Groundhog Day. It's the same thing over and over, and it's been that way for years. It'll be that way for at least this year. But last we spoke, the Mets have gone two and four, sinking deeper in the cellar. They're with us. They have a 409 win percentage, which is third worst in the NL, only ahead of Pittsburgh and San Francisco. Why, you ask? Where do we start? The starting pitching is unsettled with injuries and opt-out. What was supposed to be a strength is suspect at best. You can't count on anyone other than Jake the Goat. 
the Mets know, and he was scratched in his last start, so we don't know what his his progress is. Um, Mets number two starter Stroman opts out. Bye, Marcus. Would have liked to known you. You've seen the last of Marcus Stroman in a Mets uniform. Another bad trade by Brody Wagonin. Stroman wants number one pitcher money, and the Mets Mets better not entertain that. He wasn't any good last year. Talked a good game this year but never made it to the field due to the injury and then deciding to opt out. Mats, Mats has been used as a, a, a batting practice by the Nats and the Phillies in his last three outings with his four straight loss and now has an ERA of nine. Block is still out. Porcello looks like he's turning it around a bit with a good outing against the Nats. Six innings pitch, two earned run. The kid Peterson looks good. But the pitching is in trouble when Gazelman and Walter Lockett have to start games for you. You're just you're you're doomed. The bullpen Lugo still struggling. Gave it up against the Phils. The pitching is ranked seventh or twenty third, I should say, in the league with a 5.0 ERA, giving up the fourth most homers in the league with 32. You can't win with this pitching. On the offensive side of the ball. All you need to know is the Mets are last in the league in hitting with runners in scoring ba- runners in scoring position with a 200 average, and that's the story of the season. Just no clutch hitting. Ironically, they're ranked seventh in the league in hitting, fourth highest average with nobody on base, but again last with runners in scoring position. The Mets have some reason to be excited. K Dog, as you talked about with some of their players, you know Dom Smith. He's getting a chance now that Cespedes is uh, opted out and he's chasing wild boars full-time. Dom's hitting 300 with six homers and 16 ribbies. You talked about Guillaume. Oh, I'm hoping this guy can keep it up. We need him. Cano kind of picked up where he left off with his hitting. Conforto's hitting 329. Jimenez off to a great start. Let's hope he can keep that up. McNeil and Davis doing well, but they just can't get the timely hit. If there's mm-hmm. runners in scoring base, uh, runners in scoring position, two outs, you know they're not going to get a hit. And I, I think it's because the pitchers just bear down, and the pitchers are better than them when they bear down. Uh, it's got that's got to be it. You know, I, I think the season is over for the Mets. They're not they're not making the playoffs. They need to start looking towards the future and who will be part of that future. You know, but there is some good news on the horizon. The sale is going, is getting momentum with final bids due for the Mets on August 31st. Can't wait. Let's get the team sold. Clean house, start over. Let's get rid of the Will Clowns and let's get rid of Brody Van Wagenen, right? Because his trades, the Diaz Cano trade is looking bad and the Marcus Stroman trade is looking bad as well. So I think this Brody experiment is over. Let's sell the team, get the Will Clowns out of here. Let's get Brody out of here. Just start from the ground up, and, and you know there'll be some hope once that happens. Yeah, the only positive trade I can think of right now for Brody is the trade for J.D. Davis. That was probably a huge trade for the Mets, in my opinion. But the signing of Jed Lowry. Jed Lowry. You, you can't even remember his name. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he played eight Eight uh, at bats for the Mets, and it was probably one of the worst signings. Seventeen, I'm pretty sure it was seven mil for two years, and he 
got $7 million for eight at-bats. One of the worst signings, probably from a professional sports standpoint ever. It's just, it's the same old Mets every year. Hopefully, they get rid of Brody. The Wilpons will be gone. Hopefully, we get Steve Cohen. That would be huge for the Mets because he says he's willing to spend and spend. The Mets should, as we go to the next side of New York in the Bronx, the Yankees spend all the time. Here come the Yankees. Stein, the Steinbrunners love spending money, and that's how they win. And it's showing in the record. They are 14-6, and six, which is good for first in the East. They haven't lost since the last episode. I, I thought I jinxed them, but they haven't lost since then. Sweeping the Braves and the Sox. They continue to show why they're the favorite in the MLB to win the title. But unfortunately, they lost Judge and Stanton to the IL. This happens every year, though. Every year. They are one of the most injury-plagued duos in the MLB, possibly MLB history. But there is a light side to the Yankees. Glaber Torres in his last seven games has hit 500 batting average with eight hits and three RBIs. And another positive was Paxton had a pretty decent start in his last outing. We'll see if he could keep that up. Yeah, K-Dog, you know, the Mets spend money, but they spend it on the wrong players, whereas the Yanks typically spend it on the right players. And the Yankees also have a good eye for talent, and they just have a wealth of young talent, mm -hmm. right? And they're going to need the young talent, right? Last time we talked, I was saying how good the Yanks' offense was and how deep they are. Well, once again, they need that depth, just like last year, because their two big stars, Stanton and Judge, are out again. Judge on the 10-day DL with calf strain, earliest he can return is 821 against the Mets. So he'll show up on 821. He'll probably hit six home runs in the series against the Mets. Stanton's on the 10-day DL with a hamstring. And the, these are big losses. Um, and now they have LeMahieu, your guy from LSU. Mm -hmm. He sustained a sprained thumb. And apparently this is the same thumb that he broke a couple of years back. So his status you know, at this time is unclear. Uh, and he was off to a great start, hitting 4-11. Fortunately, the Yankees are loaded and deep with young talent. So they call up Clint Frazier mm -hmm. from the Staten Island Yankees, right? He stepped up, hitting 636 with two homers, replacing Judge. You know, then you got Mike Tockman uh, playing left field, filling in, hitting 342 with five doubles. I mean, I don't know where they get these guys from, but they're just sitting around waiting to go. You know, Gary Sanchez is starting to heat up. You talked about Glaber, right? Um, Sanchez, you know, he's homebred in three straight games. So, you know, it looks like he's getting off the schneid. And even with all of this, the Yankees went 4-0 this week, despite the injuries. You know, they beat up the Braves. Beat up the Sox, to beating them two games each. They're putting up big runs without Judge and Stanton with with solid pitching. You know the, the Yanks got a good outing from Jordan Montgomery against the Braves, six innings pitched, three earned, and a win. Tanaka was pretty good against the Braves, four innings pitched, two earned, and a win. Garrett Cole, he keeps on rolling, seven innings pitched, four hits, one earned. 8Ks win against the Sox. I mean, he looks he looks like the ace the Yankees needed. Mm -hmm. uh, Paxton pitching pretty good. Five innings pitched, three earned. Another win over the Sox. You know, and the Yanks are only ranked 14th in the league in pitching. 
Um, and then the Yanks expect to get Araldis Chapman back, right, soon mm-hmm. as well, which will bolster the bullpen. You know, they, they just keep on rolling. You know, they, they're leading the AL East with a 700-win percentage tied with the A's for the overall best win percentage. Uh, remember, it's based on win percentage and not wins and losses. You know, however, the Orioles, and yes, the Orioles, and the Rays are second with about a 570 win percentage, which is excellent. You know, so they're hanging around. So mm-hmm. if the Yankees stumble and these guys can't continue to fill in while Judge and Stanton and LeMahieu may be out, you know, it'll be interesting. So it's really exciting in the AL East, and the Yankees are doing what you and I expected them to do. Unfortunately, the Mets aren't doing what you and I hoped they would do. Yeah, they always let us down, but Clint Frazier sort of looks like the heat miser, but it looks like the heat's coming from the bat, giving up, giving home runs left and right in Yankee Stadium. Seems like he might be a good one for the outfield as a replacement for Stanton and Judge. But on to our final topic, we have K-Dog's Fantasy Minute. Oh, boy. And my performer of the week was Mookie Betts with 37.5 points. He had a huge 26-point game where he had three home runs in that game. Uh, Loser of the week for me is uh, Mike Clevenger of the Cleveland Indians. He had zero points. It was because of stupidity. He went out for dinner after one of the games, and then he had to go into quarantine and leave his team what a waste of talent right there because he could have had another win, even more points for me, but it just seems that the young people don't listen to the rules. Uh, surprise of the week is Glaber Torres. He's on fire, 23.5 points this week, which was huge. And the underwhelming pick for me this week was Brandon Woodruff, pitcher of the Brewers. He had 7.0 points this week. Not that great for a pitcher, to be honest, but... Did we win? Yes, we won. We All are right. two and one on the season, two and one, and hopefully we can continue this in the future. Excellent, K Dog. Yeah, that is great. But that's it's it from the seller to today, you. and here's hoping our teams get out of the cellar soon. Yeah.